The PR Moment Podcast. Your weekly insights into what's hot and what's not in public relations and communications. This week I'm interviewing the PRCA's Francis Ingham as part of our series of one-to-one interviews with some of the most senior people in UK PR. Francis Ingham is a controversial character in public relations, liked by many and by his own admission, loathed by some. But when you've changed an organisation as quickly as Ingham, alongside the context of the PRCA's at times aggressive rivalry with the CIPR, perhaps this is unsurprising. Francis, I thought we'd start at the very beginning because your life has been quite a journey. It may be your passion for the Conservative Party or your penchant for pinstripe suits, but I suspect many people believe you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. But this is far from the case. Good morning, Francis. Good morning, Ben. Good to be here with you today. Francis, just tell us about your early years. Okay, so I was brought up on a council estate in Manchester, and I guess my early years weren't the uh, the happiest of anybody's life. They certainly weren't the kind of years I would want for my uh, for my own children. Um, but they were mainly built around uh, around reading. Actually, I had a passion for cricket and a passion for history, and used to read an awful lot. And uh, that's something that's um, stuck uh, stuck with me, I guess. But in those early years, you you seem to show a passion for academia, shall we say? Did did you have a mentor at, at that time? Um, I guess a passion had been taking it a bit too far. Um, I hated going to school; absolutely hated. My uh, my mother uh, put me into uh, nursery on the very last legal day that she could. Um, I didn't attend school at all between being seven and eight. Uh, I simply refused to go um, because I didn't want to go. My mother didn't make me. Um, But what I did do in those years, um, and I hope my children aren't going to listen to this, which is not the advice I give to them, uh, I actually learned more uh, by being away from school than I did at school. I read loads of history. Uh, I did loads of algebra and so on. Uh, my uncle taught me uh, basic Latin and very, very basic Greek. Uh, and I had a more intellectually challenging couple of years um, than I would have done in a primary school uh, teaching you the bog-standard rubbish that they uh, sometimes do. Uh, when I finally was compelled to go back to school, uh, I became head boy in my primary school and uh, got an assisted place to go to private school. Had it not been for that assisted place, and uh, I'll say at this moment, thank you, Maggie Thatcher, for that, I would have ended up in the, uh, to quote Alistair Campbell, bog-standard comprehensive school down the road and been consigned, I'm sure, to the bog-standard life of many of the people who grew up around me. But that assisted place was, what, from age 11? From age 11, yeah. Right, OK. And then, so from... 11, you went to grammar school or... Uh, a minor public school called St Bede's in the north of England. Uh, and then you but you then left home at age 16. So, I mean, that's quite a... <clears throat> when you told me that, I was quite surprised. Just just talk to me about how that occurred. Yeah, so um, there was a, an accident in a chemistry lesson right. and uh, my mother grasped the opportunity to take me out of school on the back of it. Uh, and uh, I wasn't particularly resistant to that move, I guess. Uh, and uh, that was when I was about 15. And then shortly after that, I left home, uh, went to live in a hostel run by the Catholic Church. Um, pretty uh, surprising uh, 
a few years for me. Uh, I'd never heard people swear properly. Uh, bugger was the worst I'd ever heard, for example. Um, and I've certainly never seen the kind of level of uh, competitive violence uh, that one finds in um, that kind of place. Certainly toughened me up as an individual, and uh, I can't say that my love of learning and reading uh, was particularly reciprocated by my fellows around me. Uh, my old school very kindly took me back um, into the sixth form there, didn't charge me anything. Okay, so I, so I was going to say, so you, when you were in the hostel, were you still going to... Some beats, or was that, uh, had that the, finished by that point? For the first year, I wasn't, right. uh, and then they took me back, right. uh, did my GCSEs with them. So what, what were you doing yeah. for re education in that first year, then? Is that you'd gone to another another school? Uh, no, I right. wasn't doing anything at all. Okay. Uh, bit of work in the local supermarket, a um, bit of um, just dossing around, frankly. Uh, and my, uh, Beads, uh, St. Beads was a uh, very kind, uh, benign school to me. They, as I said, they took me back without paying any school fees. Uh, they pushed me all the way through sixth form. In fact, the uh, the headmaster of the school um, subsidised me. Um, sometimes when people, uh, making a political point for a moment, sometimes when people bash uh, private schools and their charitable status and, um, and so on, uh, I say they ought to probably look at my old school, uh, which made a loss on me. Uh, purely because I thought it was the right thing to do. Um, and with their support, um, I, um, I went to Oxford. Okay. Uh, I, it'd be fair to say that of my, uh, my peers in that uh, rather uh, unique uh, Catholic hostel I lived in, um, <laughs> certainly none of them went to uh, uh, university, let alone went to uh, Oxford. Cool. As a role model, it's quite an inspirational tale, actually, is that so you... You were at, eight, was it O-levels at that time, GCSEs? GCSEs. GCSEs. So you didn't... Not that old, Ben. Yeah, so your GCSEs weren't great, frankly, because you weren't at school. Correct. And then you went, you did, you, and you did a whole sixth form at St Bede's, which then, so your A-levels were pretty good, which got you into Oxford. Well, uh, not quite. My, oh. I, I passed the, uh, the Oxford entrance exam uh, before they abolished it uh, a couple of years later. So the Oxford entrance exam was um, papers, I think you sat three or something, and then you had a couple of interviews face-to-face -face at uh, Oxford itself. Um, and the whole point of those uh, papers, they believe they're um, more difficult than A-level papers, of those papers and the interviews is to find people who have an intellectual curiosity and also the ability to, uh, fee, uh, to think on their feet and to argue back. Uh, and the arguing back thing is something they very much valued then and still do now. And I think it's um, something I've certainly always had. Right. But they don't exist anymore, is that what you're saying? Or... I don't know what the, okay. what the Oxford Entrance Exam right. is these days. I, I think they amended it and then they amended it again. OK. Um, but suffice to say, there was a lot going on in your teenage years. Uh, and looking back, um, it's a... It's a bit surprising, is it, that you managed to get to Oxford, or do you think...? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it was surprising, um, and it was also great, um, and it was something I'd always wanted to do from being uh, quite a small child. My uh, family, uh, none of whom had been to Oxford or Cambridge, uh, my family was split down the middle, and the boys would uh, shout for Oxford at the boat race, and the girls, for some reason, would shout for Cambridge. Uh, and it was that uh, binary and uh, arbitrary a distinction. Now, I mean, being there, um, <clears throat> it's, a, uh, it's a strange place, it's a great place, 
um, I'd never met uh, wealth on the kind of level that you do meet when you go there. Equally, I'd never met people who were as intelligent, uh, considerably more intelligent than, than me, I'm sure, uh, and also as um, driven. And the I was quite involved in the political scene at Oxford, both in the Conservative Association called ALCA and in the Oxford Union Society. Um, and people took it all incredibly seriously. I mean, um, some of these people now are in politics, some of them are not in politics, but they all took the elections within those two student bodies um, as seriously, I think, as people take parliamentary elections now. We um, almost certainly took it far too seriously, in fact. Right. Um, and then you graduated um, from Oxford and went into various political roles. Um, how did they help you in your current role at the PRCA, do you think? Um well, I, I left Oxford in 98 and wanted desperately to work for a Tory MP. And if you remember the general election of uh, of 97, there weren't very many Tory MPs um, around. And certainly uh, being Conservative wasn't a helpful thing to be at that period in time. Um, I, I found it quite hard to get my first uh, role. Uh, but having got it, I managed to grow it, uh, to be relentlessly determined to win uh, and to uh, always uh, spy opportunities to grow the organisation, grow my own personal role uh, and to spot weaknesses in in opponents, I suppose, and also just the determination uh, to quote, uh, to quote uh, Chadlington's line to never give up, really. Fine. And your time at the PRCA... Well, from the outside looking in, it's been very successful. Um, you've grown revenues, membership, and certainly profile. But at times, I think it's probably fair to say you've been criticised for being overly aggressive. Did you look back with any regrets? Well, I'd certainly prefer to be criticised for being overly aggressive than overly passive. Um, do I look back with any regrets uh, on my 10 years as Director General of the PRCA? Um, no, actually. Maybe the odd thing at the margins. But um, no, when I joined it, it was as I think you alluded to in your opening comments, a very small organisation, in fact a dying organisation. I regretted moving there within the first couple of weeks, realising quite how weak it was, uh, and I resolved to change all of those things. Now, I make no apology at all for standing up for the best interests of the industry, things like the, the NLA and so on, um, and I make no apology either for believing that uh, we are best placed to represent the industry. Equally, we've always been happy and eager, in fact, to work with partners like PR Moment and others uh, to represent the industry as well as we possibly can. And I think over the 10 years, we've done some really good stuff. We've run the government's apprenticeship programme, opening up the industry to people who wouldn't otherwise be in it. We've done a lot of campaigning work on the gender pay gap and on paying interns, on changing copyright law in the NLA, on making the case for PR as an ethical and professional industry. And I, uh, I have no regrets about any of those things at all. OK. So just drilling into that a, a little bit, you, you regretted in those first few weeks <laughs> joining. Did you ever come close to, to leaving? Obviously, obviously not a couple well, of years down the line, but in those, in those early... Yeah, I did, actually. We had the uh, 
PRCA awards within about two weeks of me joining and they were in a sticky nightclub in Camden in the middle of the afternoon with a Z-list comedian I'd never heard of then and I don't think anyone has heard of subsequently as the compa. I uh, went home that evening and did seriously consider asking my old boss Colin Farrington the CIPR for my old job back um, but simply out of the embarrassment of having to crawl back to him, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't do, and I'm very glad that I didn't do that. No, I should imagine so. Um, go on, and let's give. What, what do you think is your, your greatest achievement at the PRCA? Well, uh, a year ago, I would have said taking on the NLA um, in the High Court, Court of Appeal, Supreme Court, and European Court of Justice, and beating them and changing copyright law in 28 countries as a consequence. When you get the writ in the names of the seven national newspaper groups suing your organisation, it's not the most uh, tranquil of moments. Um, but in the uh, in the last few months, obviously, we have handled the complaint against Bell Pottinger. We have handled that, I think, pretty well. We expelled Bell Pottinger, and I think we've made a very public comment that uh, there are standards in the industry and that the PRCA is there to uphold them and will do so without fear or favour. You know, we've uh, expelled the most, in my view, famous PR agency in the world. Not a, an easy decision, a tough decision, but the right decision. And I am, at the moment, 10 years in, would count that as my greatest achievement so far. And it's been delivered with a great team behind me, uh, a board that has given me authority and confidence, and an industry that has actually wanted us to take the firm action that we have taken. Sure. And what next then? I mean, as memory serves, you're, you're only 41. It's pretty young, really, in, in terms of career. Um, you have plenty of time to, to continue, continue your upward career path. Um, what's next for Francis Ingham? Well, I'm genuinely very happy indeed at the PRCA uh, and ECO, the international uh, body I also run. Um, I think that the industry that I serve is a great industry, a growing industry, a dynamic industry, a young industry, and the, just as the PRCA's best days lie ahead of us, um, so do the industries, and therefore, so long as it wants me to be its Director General, um, so do mine. Francis Singham, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moments podcast. To keep up to date with what's happening in public relations and communications, subscribe to the PR Moment podcast in iTunes or at prmoments.com slash podcast. prmoments.com, exploring the evolution of public relations. This PR Moment podcast was produced by broadcast PR specialist, Shout Communications.